0: Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your host is Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor and founder of the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute.
1: One of the aspects of hosting a podcast is the opportunity to share people and perspectives I feel are useful to my listening audience. I never expect you to agree whole cloth with them or their points of view or even my point of view, but I find it's difficult to come to sound biblical conclusions. If one is not acquainted with situations and practices that are prevalent in our society, when it comes to medical care, most people traditionally have had the idea that a hospital is a safe place to go when you or a loved one is ill. Now, I live in San Jose, California, and I randomly chose a hospital website in my area, just randomly, and looked up their mission statement and vision. This is how it reads. Mission, we are committed to providing the highest quality and compassionate health care and comfort to the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. We strive for excellence in the delivery of high quality, cost-effective health care to the communities and individuals we serve. And then they provided their vision statement, which they said is how they pursue their mission. We recognize and affirm the unique and intrinsic worth of each individual. We treat all those we serve with compassion, kindness, and respect. We act with honesty, integrity, and fairness. We value each other as members of our healthcare team and pledge to treat one another with respect and dignity. We pursue excellence in health care through continuing education, quality assurance, state-of-the-art equipment and facilities, and appropriate staffing. Sadly, it has been all too frequent since COVID that the values stated here do not always match up with real-life experience. One of the Out of the Question podcast listeners sent me an email suggesting I contact my guest today to hear his story and how he is using the tragedy that occurred in his family to help others. Scott Shara is a husband and father. One of his daughters lived a happy, productive life for 19 years until she went into the hospital during COVID. I will let him provide the account of what took place, but I've asked him to tackle the question, have hospitals become killing centers? Thanks for joining me today, Scott.
0: Wow. What a great introduction, Andrea. We're going to have a fantastic conversation. Thanks for having me.
1: So I know you've shared your story many times in many places, and I would like you to do so today to provide a context for that question I just posed. So acquaint my audience with the particulars of what took place a couple of years ago that altered your life forever.
0: Well, this happened in the fourth quarter of 2021. As I look at things now, becoming a full-time researcher, I see the motivation. The hospital murders during COVID were at the highest point during this fourth quarter. My daughter, Grace, had Down syndrome. October 13th of 2021 was her first day in heaven. And what got us there, unfortunately, is I was not awake to anything relative to COVID or as I have found out the bigger picture agenda that, you know, when you, when I start answering the question about how hospitals or have hospitals become killing fields, I'll connect a lot of dots for your listeners. But we were, I thought I was prepared in that as a family already did not vaccinate grace. We knew that vaccines in our perspective of, obeying God went against trusting God. So Grace was never vaccinated with anything, including the COVID jab. That being said, we were not awake to what was going on with COVID. And we were following the FLCCC protocol. FLCCC is frontline critical COVID care doctors. And we had ivermectin, vitamins, a pulse ox. What I thought we needed for our family Relative to COVID, on October 1st, we were going to go to a wedding, and Grace had a cold. We thought, well, we better do our civic duty. So my wife Cindy drove to town, uh, went to Walgreens, we got a home test kit, and we tested Grace for COVID, and she tested positive. Now that I see things again, you know, when I say these these specifics, Andrea, I'd like to couch them in that. what I see COVID as now is different than then. But I saw COVID through the lens of the fear propaganda that was being sold to all of us. And so consequently, we tested Grace. She tested positive. We got her on ivermectin, the vitamins. We started testing her oxygen. And her oxygen saturation on October 6th, so this is five days later, was at 88%. The FLCCP See protocol at the time said if your oxygen saturation drops below 94%, admit yourself to the hospital. And that was a critical mistake. Obviously, Grace is dead, but that's not what I'm that was the result of taking her to the hospital, but not the cause. If I would have never taken Grace to the hospital, she would be alive today. And I'm 100% certain of that because three days after Grace died, I went into a different hospital, substantially worse. I just about died on October 16th. And that hospital turned me around in 24 hours. I know with certainty Grace would be alive today. The mistake that I made as the dad and the leader of our family was fear had influenced my critical thinking. And the specific situation is we had no business even owning a Pulse Ox. Why? Because we had no baseline. If we had tested Grace's oxygen regularly when she had a cold or flu in the past, we would have seen what her baseline oxygen would have been. And I know now, based on studying, that dropping into the 80s is very common with cold or flu. So we would not have panicked and let the fear control all the situations that happen. This does not excuse the hospital. It doesn't excuse the doctors or nurses. I'm just telling you, if history, if your goal is to not have history repeat itself, you've got to drill down to what mistake did I make and then repent of that mistake.
1: So first of all, very few people will start off a conversation like this saying, this is what I did wrong this is where I was naive, foolish, or undereducated or uneducated. But because Grace had Down syndrome, it's not like you had not been an attentive father in terms of the medical issues that normally come about because someone has Down syndrome. But Grace was not a sickly girl. Grace was not somebody who was incapacitated. Aside from her Down syndrome, you would say, she was healthy and normal, correct?
0: Oh, my gosh, yeah. She was off the charts with healthy and normal, and she was off the charts relative to what her life was like. I mean, she did everything. She played violin at our daughter Jessica's wedding. I taught her how to drive a car. She deer hunted with me. Uh, she rode a horse. She could public speak. She was a joke teller. I mean, there was nothing she didn't do. So the Down syndrome did not influence her health whatsoever. It influenced how they treated her. And I say that with certainty because in the 22 doctors reports that were written in the seven days Grace was in the hospital, they referenced that she had Down syndrome 36 different times. And in some of the documents that I have found in my research, I see the agenda towards people with Down syndrome. You know, it starts with aborting them. 90% of Down syndrome, people are murdered in the womb. Uh, So it's no surprise they have an agenda toward Down syndrome, and it's broader. It's towards the disabled because the disabled are non-contributing members of society. And I'm putting non-contributing members of society in quotes because Ezekiel Emanuel said that in 1996, and he's the chief architect of Obamacare. Obamacare codified the agenda to reduce the population legally in the United States of America. And... You know, we can go off on that rabbit trail in a bit, but you know, I, I know you want to get to the story. But if you have another, no,
1: no, I, I think it's useful for people along the way to kind of. It's not really a bunny trail. This is part of the whole story, but Correct. I was taken by the fact on things you sent me that said that there is a concerted effort to change the view of a patient who happens to have Down syndrome when he or she gets into a hospital. And so the fact that you uncovered that should make some of the other things you uncovered more significant to listeners here, because Down syndrome what might be the low-hanging fruit to reduce population. If they get away with that, as they have in many cases in many countries with aborting Down syndrome children, and that's the whole reason to test, because you see, once we test, now you have this problem, whereas... If you just waited till the baby was born, this would be your son, this would be your daughter.
0: That's correct. Right. And that banality of evil is how they pulled this off. I mean, they, the cabal in the United States has created a culture of death and that culture of death. I mean, they use the excuse of money, but it really has nothing to do with money. It has to do with the idea that these elitists think they're going to live forever through transhumanism and they've got to conserve the resources of the planet, you know, so that's how they sold the idea of climate control and and population reduction because you know, we don't have enough resources for the population. You, you know, money, I'll just hit that real quick. How did they pull this off relative to the money situation? Well, they have strategically put the disabled on Medicaid and the elderly on Medicare. There's 135 million Americans on Medicare and Medicaid right now. The cost of those programs and the associated programs for the elderly and the disabled is $3 trillion a year. That's 50% of the annual federal budget. That's how they fooled the medical industrial complex to implement standards of care. You know, So I'm starting to answer your original question. Have hospitals become killing fields? Yeah, they have slowly over time. You know the the uh, mission and vision statement you read of the hospital that you pulled from online is absolutely outstanding. I mean, I'd, I'd rank those words a ten, well maybe a nine because they don't reference where our rights come from, which is from God. But, I mean, it was outstanding words. If they accept Medicare and Medicaid, the words go out the window because the Center for Medicaid Services sets the standard of care for the entire country, whether you're on Medicare or Medicaid or not. And the standards of care is how they've gotten away with this hastening death process. Hastening death is murder. If you reduce somebody's time on this earth, it is murder. And the standards of care are designed to reduce the number of days we're alive on this earth. And I'll just give you a very simple example. If A person, first of all, just think about the idea of programming. So we're going to use the C word, cancer. The programming that all of us have received is that if we get cancer, it's like, oh my gosh, you know, the panic, right? So now you go to the doctor and they do a biopsy and it comes back, you've got cancer. So now you're fearful and the doctor does everything in his power to not have you leave his office before you've signed up for chemo and radiation. And chemo and radiation only have a 3% success rate, but we've been programmed that the only thing that we care about is does my insurance pay for it? And insurance will not pay. Cancer has been cured, but insurance will not pay for any of the cures. And the cures are hidden from the population. So cancer when when you look at historically, medical murder has become the number one cause of death in the United States. But historically, medical malpractice has been the third leading cause of death. And it's third followed by number one is heart disease. Number two is cancer. Well, I just showed you cancer at 600,000 deaths a year is by design. So the cancer, the cure for the cancer, chemo and radiation is what kills the patient, not the cancer itself.
1: Right, right.
0: So you get the idea. So now that's why I say this hospital that has the beautiful words that they paid a PR person to get on their website. If they accept Medicare and Medicaid, that means they are hastening death through standards of care designed to kill people.
1: Okay, so give some examples. I mean, I think everybody is aware of the fact that the elderly took a big hit during covid and the practices of you know of sending them back to nursing homes and compromising all the other residents give some examples of how that actually played out how would the average medical practitioner obey orders in that context
0: all right so we're we're going to start with covid so i mean i i went outside of the context of covid covid woke me up so i see covid as a call to repentance it woke me up personally as a dad, as a husband, as a man, it woke me up to what's going on. That's why I started researching when I realized Grace was murdered. Grace didn't follow the COVID protocols. The uh, There's 1.2 million Americans murdered in the 39-month COVID era in hospitals. The protocols that were used, generally speaking, were remdesivir and ventilators. So I'm going to walk through how this happened and then then connect the dots. Grace was never on remdesivir and never on a ventilator. That's what got me looking at this way beyond COVID. Because if she would have been on one of those two or both those protocols, I would have just thought, well, these are what they were doing to kill people in COVID. Because she wasn't, and we'll get back to how she was killed here in in a little bit, but because she wasn't, it got me looking at and processing and researching what's really happened happening. But here's, let's just look at how this, this whole thing got going. Back in 1969 was the first law that was passed. And there's a series of laws that were passed that turned over the idea of a public health emergency to the Health and Human Services Secretary. So the Health and Human Services Secretary is unilaterally decides if he's going to put the nation under a public health emergency. When that happens, he has all kinds of power and authority that is not challengeable by Congress. So jump ahead to April 10th of 2023. That's when Congress passed the law that COVID was over. That was illegal. That was a dog and pony show to give the American people a perception that Congress is finally doing something. Well, Congress is in on it. They didn't do anything other than a dog and pony show. They already, decades ago, gave the authority to the Health and Human Services Secretary. So now he implements a public health emergency. What happens after the public health emergency is implemented, that gives him the authority to implement the PREP Act. The PREP Act provides immunity from liability for any healthcare provider as long as they follow the standards of care. Well then, what happened is the FDA implemented the COVID standards of care, and so the tools that they had there was a number of them, and the ones that get the news are remdesivir and ventilators. Well, just re- try to wrap your head around this. Just just talk about remdesivir and ventilators. Remdesivir has a seventy-five percent kill rate. Ventilators have a ninety percent kill rate. So, let if we even buy into the PSYOP, so the PSYOP of COVID for the first, you know, we say. Andrea, you and I are are um, doctors in the COVID wing of a hospital. So the first week, you know, everybody's panicking. We've got this pandemic. People are coming in. We start treating them with remdesivir ventilator because, you know, our trusted FDA is telling us these are the emergency use authorization tools in our tool chest. Now, after two weeks, the first round of patients die, three weeks, the next round, all of a sudden we see Every patient is dying, every one of them. Wouldn't you start questioning and start, you know, when I, I know what I would do when I get home at night after my shift, I'd start looking at, okay, what's going on around the world? What are other doctors trying? Because I want to save my patients. My goal is not to just get a paycheck for following orders, but that's, that's what happened. And so they're, they're literally still using remdesivir and ventilators today, literally the, today, even though right. you know the public thinks COVID is over, so they're not using these things anymore. I mean, they are literally going on today. That's why every chance I get to speak, I speak because I want people to see through my testimony what is happening.
1: Okay. So one of the things I do know to be true is that hospitals were incentivized. To diagnose COVID, if the person came in and had been killed in a motorcycle accident and they tested and said, this person had COVID, that was a COVID death. So they were reimbursed or whatever. And then of course, the use of remdesivir, a pharmaceutical company profited by that. And if I'm not mistaken, there was like a $30,000 bonus if you had put somebody on a ventilator.
0: You know the ventilator bonus was actually thirty nine thousand just to put them on the ventilator, but the average amount of time somebody was on a ventilator is twenty two days and so the profit the profit to the hospital during that window was about three hundred thousand so it was i mean it
1: was per day it was per day that's what they got if somebody was no. on the ventilator
0: no it wasn't per day it was a thirty nine thousand dollar basically sign on you know, you sign somebody up for the ventilator you you they received a thirty nine thousand dollar incentive payment from the government, but then because of the hospital stay being an average of 22 days, you know, with the insurance payment and then the bonuses for remdesivir and the bonus for COVID, and then on top of that, they would receive a $13,000 bonus for listing COVID-19 on the death certificate. You know, it it the, the ventilator itself ended up being about a $300,000 payday to the hospital, assuming the patient stayed in the average of 22 days.
1: I see. So from what you tell me and what I've read about the situation, the problem was Grace and her family were not interested in remdesivir. They weren't interested in ventilators. And you were in a struggle with the medical people trying to persuade you over and over again to follow those protocols.
0: Well, that's exactly right. As we fast forward to Grace's last day on Earth, At this point, so I was with Grace from October 6th to the 10th. On the 10th, I was taken out by an armed guard. We had to hire an attorney to get my daughter, Jessica, in as a replacement advocate. My wife, Cindy, couldn't do it because she was sick. I mean, maybe COVID, I don't know, but she was too sick to do it. Anyway, during the 47 hours we didn't didn't have advocacy, we found out the day before that, but before I was taken out, they started Grace on a sedation med called Presidex. They increased the dose of Presidex six different times during the 47 hours without an advocate. So they sedated my little buddy instead of taking care of her. As we flipped to Grace's last day, Jessica was with her the entire evening of the 12th. Grace had, even though she had now been sedated for four days at this point, she still was herself. She was joking around with Jessica. Uh, Jess was monitoring her oxygen the entire night. She was at 98, 99% the doctor called Cindy and I the next morning Grace's last day and said Grace had such a good day yesterday uh, well first he started with it, it, the request for the ventilator so this was the fifth time they were asking us you know it wasn't rudely but it was it was persistently so he said you know we the purpose of my call is is to uh, have the two of you Give us a pre-authorization to put Grace on a ventilator just in case. And he said, these type of things tend to happen in the middle of the night when we can't get a hold of the family. Well, we had already, I had researched ventilators while Grace was in the hospital. I went into the hospital with the false belief that ventilators were a tool in the tool chest because former President Trump had implemented the War Powers Act. And so this was all part of the psyop to convince us that this is an emergency. Anyway. Once I researched ventilators, I knew we weren't going to put Grace on a ventilator no matter what. And I suspect they knew we would say no for the fifth time because immediately they implemented what I call plan B. So we say no, and then he switched gears right away on the phone call and said, well, Grace had such a good day. Let's work on nutrition. Let's get her out of bed today so that she can be home in the next several days. This was all a lie. Why do I know that? Because Grace was already strapped down to the bed before the call and made to defecate in the bed. While we were on the call with the doctor, he increased Presidex to the maximum allowable dose. While we're on the phone, Presidex is not supposed to be used for more than 24 hours. If it is, it causes acute respiratory failure. So he was causing Grace's acute respiratory failure, which was listed as the first cause of death on her her death certificate. Simultaneous with hanging up the phone, he put an illegal do not resuscitate order on Grace's chart. Well, the Presidex didn't kill Grace. So now they combine Presidex with lorazepam and morphine. Some of your audience is going to recognize that that's what the med combination they used to end somebody's life in hospice care in their last hour of life. They combine those meds in 29 minutes. Nobody would have survived that. So you can see, and then you think, well, it could have been an accident. Well, I thought it was an accident at the beginning too. Several months into my research, I realized she was murdered because not only did the doctor have to order those meds, the pharmacist had to sign off. And the alarm had to be overridden because those meds are contraindicated according to the morphine package insert. And the nurse who gave Grace those meds had 20 years of ICU experience. So it was no accident. And then when it came time to revive Grace, Jessica was, you know, she's in the room with Grace. She's realizing she's getting cold. She's begging the nurses to come in. They refuse. So she called Cindy and I on a FaceTime call. And she told me, Dad, Grace's numbers are dropping like crazy. I said, get the nurses in. She said, I've been trying. They refuse. So we start screaming through the phone, save our daughter. The nurses from outside the room, Jess estimated 30 nurses outside at this point because of the shift change. And there was a guard outside the room. And instead of coming in the room and reviving grace, they hollered back, she's DNR. And of course, we hollered back, she's not DNR, save our daughter. And they refused. And we, we watched her die at 727 p.m. on October 13th of 2021 on a FaceTime
1: call. Okay, so yes. DNR, do not yep. resuscitate, is something that has to be either requested by the patient or the patient's family, Correct.
0: Well, that's the common understanding. I mean, we have learned, I mean, the the Department of Safety and Professional Services, which is the licensing board in Wisconsin for the doctors, I filed a complaint and we had a pharmacist file a related complaint against the same doctor Uh, roughly, let's see, a year and a half after mine, you know, my complaint was fairly complete, but hers is is not just complete. It's from a pharmacist. It's 100 pages long. And the Department of Safety and Professional Services came back and said a doctor in a hospital setting has the right to put a DNR on a patient unilaterally. Wow. You can't make this stuff up. I mean, that's part of One of the complaints in our lawsuit is to deal with that issue because that cannot be true. They can't make law on their own.
1: You said your lawsuit. Who are you suing?
0: We are suing the the hospital, of course, but then we took the extraordinary step of suing the five doctors and two nurses who were directly involved with Grace's death. And we did that. I mean, it's substantially more expensive for a lawsuit, but we did that because of the fact that we want, you know, our goal is to stop the behavior and to stop the behavior. Of course, the hospital's guilty. They received incentive payments for labeling Grace's COVID-19 pneumonia, both in, when she checked in and on her death certificate. I mean, so they, they're they guilty, of course, but you know, they did not pull the trigger. The individual doctors and nurses pulled the trigger. And in order to stop this behavior, either the doctors and nurses have to repent or you know they have to be held to account. In, you know If we're going to do it in this lifetime, God will hold them to account. But if we're going to do it in this lifetime, they have to be listed in the lawsuit. You can't just sue a hospital because then there's no consequence to the people who actually pulled the trigger.
1: Okay, and then this lawsuit is being funded by you personally, correct? Correct. Okay. So some people would say, okay, this sounds like a one-off. And, and if it was a one-off, you'd have to deal with not having your daughter with you anymore. But the more you researched, and that's where you were referencing protocols for people with Down syndrome, whatever, you realized that this is not a one-off this is actually a plan and a procedure, and it's being implemented by people who know exactly what they're doing.
0: I'm positive of that, Andrea. And, you know, that's ultimately why we filed the lawsuit. We realize, you know, God made us for a time such as this. That's the Esther 414 reference. And there's a lot of of background to that. You know, one is, I've owned a business for 30 years, so my business training allows me to research, um, organize, uh, prepare for a lawsuit. So, I mean, I've done a whole bunch of work before the legal team got a hold of it so they could size up the case because you, you have to have a great case. These cases are very hard to prove in a court of law. In In fact, I had talked with a medical malpractice attorney early on and thought, we'll never file a case because he just told me the truth. He said, Scott, even in slam dunks like this appears to be, we only have a one in 10 chance of winning. I said, what do you mean? And he said, I'll share an example to prove my point. He said, I represented a family where the husband died and the doctor had sewed up a sponge in the surgery and we lost. I said, well, how is that possible? He said, I brought in 10 experts, but they brought in a hundred and in this case, we're up against Ascension Hospital system. they have thirty billion in cash, so I mean you it's you know the idea of you can't beat city hall you know that's what we we learned when we we're growing up. it's real. The laws really prevent you from winning these cases, and the laws specifically uh, there's a limitation to the amount of damages you can receive in a medical malpractice case in Wisconsin it's seven hundred fifty thousand that's the maximum so if you process if the odds are one in ten chance of winning, that means seventy five thousand is the average payout so if these attorneys are taking on medical malpractice cases, the state law says you only can take one third so they could only take they only could get paid twenty five thousand dollars. The out of pocket for an average medical malpractice case is between $250 and $300,000 just of the out of pocket cost for the experts and the legal fees. Right. And, you know, ours is substantially more than that because we have five claims. Medical malpractice is one claim, but then we're also, we have eight defendants. So this is an expensive case. And this is why I say God made us for a time such as this. You know, we had set up our estate to take care of grace. You know, I thought that was my you know, my primary responsibility. So you know, praise God, we're able to to do this. And so I see it as this case is representing 1.2 million Americans and during the COVID, who died during the COVID era. But it's way bigger than that. And I, I do want to just quickly frame the 1.2 million murders in hospitals during COVID because people don't really understand how big that number is until you you compare it. And I'm I'm a believer in the God of the Bible, and in Revelation 18:23, He says that mystery Babylon is going to deceive with its pharmacia. Well, so what does that look like in practical terms? Well, big picture, the United States has 4.2 percent of the world's population. We consume 44 percent of the world's prescriptions. We write. Almost 4.8 billion prescriptions a year for United States citizens. I mean, think about the insanity of that. All right, so then if we're deceiving the world with our pharmakia, we, through our leadership, convinced 71% of the entire world's population to get a bioweapon injected into their arm. We pulled that off through the fear propaganda with hospital murders. In Grace's case, she she was a martyr in the fourth quarter of 2021, one of 1.2 million Americans murdered in hospitals. There's 200 countries on the planet. United States is number one in hospital murders during the 39-month COVID era of all 200 countries. India is number two. India's population is four times that of the United States, but their death count was less than half, 531,000. So process that, right? Just wrap your head around just that one statistic. And I've, I've got hundreds of slides proving this stuff out, but just that one statistic is enough that you think, what the heck happened here?
1: So um, what you have to say, Scott, isn't encouraging. And I'm sure a lot of people want to put their hands over their eyes and their ears and say, it's not true. It's not true. This couldn't happen because a lot of people, especially um, the baby boomers are all Medicare patients because they have to be. If you don't sign up for Medicare, you're penalized. If you hold out for a while, you get a regular penalty. And if you do decide, okay, I'll do it. I give in. I'll do it. They charge you at the rate plus the penalty. So it seems that the mouse gets lured into the trap by the cheese. And it sounds like Americans have bought in whole cloth, we like the cheese.
0: Medicare is the ultimate bait and switch. We've paid for Medicare through our payroll deduction our entire lifetime. And then we we think when we turn 65 that we hit the jackpot because now we have free medical care. Well, as I explained earlier, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services writes standards of care to hasten our death. You know, the best thing that... If people are, I often get asked, what's the one thing that people can do to uh, save themselves from a hospital stay? And I, I always say change their belief because once your belief changes, your actions follow. So we, as a family, we don't have medical insurance anymore. And the reason we don't have medical insurance is because I do not want to have our decisions influenced by somebody whose goal is to kill us.
1: So, So the first do no harm part of what the uh, medical oaths are about, it maybe should be rewritten do not rock the boat.
0: Well, yeah, that's that. uh, I want to go off on that tangent because you bring it up. So, we've been programmed. My podcast, by the way, Andrea, is called Deprogramming with Grace's Dad. So, this word is near and dear to me. I mean, I, Grace died to wake me up. So what does that look like? It looks like, okay, what all have I been lied to? At the beginning, at the beginning, I called it the Santa Claus effect. You know, you once you learn that Santa Claus isn't real, you start asking other questions like, what about the Easter bunny? What about the tooth fairy? Well, this is what's been happening to me as I've been waking up, what's going on? And so the Hippocratic Oath was one of the things that I had to wake up to because I read it. So we've been programmed to believe that the Hippocratic Oath is do no harm. And that's a partial truth. It's not the whole truth. A doctor wrote me last May after he heard me on a podcast and he said, Scott, I just want you to be aware we haven't even taken the Hippocratic Oath for 30 years. Well, I read the Hippocratic Oath and I'd encourage everybody to read it. And what you're going to find out is that it's an oath to satanic gods. So just wrap your head around that. Satan has had six thousand years to perfect this antichrist agenda and he has done it with a vengeance. We have been lied to in inconceivable ways. We've been lied to beyond what people what people can imagine. And you know, I'm only talking in the healthcare lane today, that just process the idea that if we are programmed to trust the white coat. So now in the fourth, what what's the consequence? So in the fourth quarter, I mentioned this earlier, and I'll just drill this down. I'm going to pull up the slide here so I give the statistic accurately. In the fourth quarter of 2021, that's the quarter Grace was murdered in. That's the highest quarter of hospital murders during the COVID era. Well, what was going on? Well, what was going on very specifically is Brooke Jackson had already filed her False Claims Act lawsuit. Brooke Jackson was um, a Pfizer employee. A False Claims Act lawsuit is when you realize that somebody is defrauding the government, get whistleblower protection. So she files this lawsuit against Pfizer. Pfizer's defense, and what she was filing specifically for, is she knew Pfizer never tested the jab. And so... Pfizer's defense is they, they produced an other authority agreement with the Department of Defense that said this thing was never a vaccine. It was a prototype. So consequently, they didn't have to do any testing. The federal government came in and instead of supporting their whistleblower supported Pfizer. So this was already out in the public. The federal government already admitted the jab was causing myocarditis in May of 2021. So now you get to the fourth quarter of 2021, they incentivized family practitioners to get their patients jabbed to the tune of if so a family practitioner's average salary is between 225 250000 annually. During the fourth quarter of 2021, the family practitioners, if they could convince 75% of their patient populations to get the jab, they would receive a $296,000 bonus. So you can see how nefarious this is, and the reason I say it has nothing to do with COVID—COVID COVID exposed it. But when you start seeing how they've been doing this for decades with the standards of care, it's it's quite interesting. And I'll share a, a story. And then I I found a document that that supported it. You know. God gives us certain memories that nobody else remembers, but this was one that I had remembered. So when I started to be a researcher, I went in to see if I could find the documents. And so the memory is from 1968. I was in kindergarten in 1968, and I remember the weekly readers. And one of the weekly readers, they were trying to program us little five-year-old kindergartners in 68. And it said that it's irresponsible to have more than two children. And if your parents had an electric can opener, that was wrong because it's using limited resources of the planet. So I started digging into the weekly readers. I couldn't find that exact one, but I found several. And then I found a document from 1967. It was the first one put out by the Rockefellers that was public. That is, it's titled, Plan to Depopulate the United States. So you think that this is this is not happening here? Well, what we have been exceptional at is projecting our sin at all the other countries on the planet while we're committing worse sins. And I'm going to be very specific once again here, Andrea, because the latest eugenics agenda, eugenics has been around since before Jesus walked, but the latest eugenics agenda started in the early 1900s. And we started, the United States started a sterilization program. Adolf Hitler adopted that program. And, of course, we point our finger at him. Boy, I mean, this is what he's doing with eugenics, wanting to create a supreme race. I mean, point our fingers. But while we're pointing our fingers, we brought to the United States the 1,600 top German eugenicists through Operation Paperclip. So they've been they've been working in the United States on eugenics for you know since World War II ended. And well, really before that, but I mean on steroids since World War II ended. So it's no no uh, surprise when I found this document from '67 about the plan to depopulate the United States. Well, then most people in your audience would be familiar with the Canadian MAID program, medical assistance in dying. So we, I, I was watching, I rarely watch TV. I came home, turned on Newsmax one night, a few, several months ago, and they were talking about the Canadian Made program and pointing their fingers. And they even called out Down syndrome. And I thought, I wonder if our story is getting that far of a reach that they, they need to, um, to counter and, and give a false narrative because we're, we're getting enough press well. Our MAID program was documented on March 23rd of 2010, and March 23rd of 2010 is when Obamacare was passed. Remember earlier I said about Ezekiel Emanuel, who was the chief architect of Obamacare, he said that non-contributing members of society don't deserve medical care. Well, in section 1553 of Obamacare, I've got it up on my screen right here. I'm just going to read it. So that the government may not subject an individual or institutional health care entity. So an individual is a doctor, institutional health care entity is a nursing home, hospital, or hospice care facility to discrimination. So that seems good, right? We don't want our government to discriminate on the basis of what? on the basis that that entity does not provide any healthcare item or service furnished for the purpose of causing or the purpose of assisting in causing the death of any individual, such as by assisted suicide, euthanasia, or mercy killing. Well, so that's what happened during COVID. And the doctors who stood and quit, there's several doctors and nurses who stood against this and left their jobs over it. They wouldn't take the jab or knew that they're killing people. And so then they got fired. Well, guess what? When they're discriminated against, what happened? They're shunned. They can't work. They can't get the, their, the state licensing board is taking their license. Their appeal process when they're discriminated against is to our old friend, the Department of Health and Human Services. Remember the health and human services secretary is the one who has unilateral authority to create a public health emergency, which he did illegally and kept it going. They have to re-up it every three months. He did it every three months for 39 months in a row, all illegal. And so that's who you're supposed to appeal to is probably the most corrupt person on the United States payroll is the health and human services secretary.
1: I do think it's important for people to digest it. Now, you've learned this over a period of years and so it's always difficult for people to say wait a minute you're telling me i can't trust my doctor you're telling me that the hospital that has fundraisers that i participate in and i do all the the the, the stuff that is grateful that we have this hospital it shouldn't be trusted but i i think more and more people whether it's things that happened in the military, things that happened in terms of shutting down small businesses, people are waking up, but waking up to say, oh my goodness, things are really bad. They're much worse than I thought. And so I've been hearing a lot of people talking about setting up parallel economies. So you don't have insurance. You more than likely won't go to a hospital unless you absolutely have to. So have you thought not just so much in terms of let's share what the wicked are doing do you have a sense of how christians initially as a group could set up a parallel medical economy
0: i do because i've been i've been researching that also a couple of weeks ago we had the lady uh, who set up blessed by his blood and what she is doing is early on, I realized, I mean, what happens if somebody goes in the hospital, and you realize I don't want any of this vaccinated blood because this stuff is designed to kill us. This vaccine was designed to kill us. I mean, there's no question about that. So you, you wouldn't want vaccinated blood. So she's working on a national network to be able to get unvaccinated blood. So, I mean, that's a piece of the puzzle. You know, of course, the biggest piece of the of the puzzle is trust, trusting in God instead of meds. That's going to, that takes a lot, especially for somebody that is on meds already, but you start digging into it. And I'll give you a, an example and I'm going to come back to the question. Six and a half years ago, I was diagnosed with heart disease and they wanted to put me on, they as the the cardiologist and the primary care doctor wanted to put me on the statin drug. And I started researching what is the cause of heart disease? And I realized, oh my gosh, the statin drug is no good. I don't need the statin drug. I drilled down my own blood chemistry and saw what what was the problem. You know, I was healthy. So there, I thought, what's what's even going on? So I, I spent about 300 hours researching and realized, okay, I don't need to be on the statin. Well, this is what glued me into the standards of care being nefarious is the nurse at that time. She was a good nurse. She said, Scott, I want to tell you something. You're not you don't want to hear. And I said, what is it? She said, well, you have to go on the statin. I said, what do you mean? I don't have to do that. And she said, well, you don't understand. We accept Medicare and Medicaid and the statin is the standard of care. I said, well, I'm not on Medicare and Medicaid. She said, it doesn't matter. The standard of care is for our entire patient population and our reimbursement rates go down if we can't convince our entire patient population to go on the standards of care. So if there's enough people like you who reject the standards of care, our Medicare and Medicaid reimbursement rates go down. So we have to fire the patient. All right. So you start with the belief that, okay, I'm going to take responsibility for my own healthcare. I'm not going to instantly go to a hospital for a sniffle. There is um, an organization called the Wedge. We have a link on Grace's website, ouramazinggrace.net, and these are people who have set up their own practices out their cash, generally cash pay. So they've set up their own practices outside of the conventional Medicare, Medicaid, allopathic medicine system. So I would encourage you get a relationship with somebody outside the system. So I mean, we did that, of course, already. We've had a couple of medical things that have happened and praise God, the nurse practitioner we have the relationship with has knocked it out of the park. You know, the unvaccinated blood, I'd encourage people to do that. The blessed by his blood situation. I'm looking at getting getting, uh, somebody, a doctor from an alternative surgery center on my podcast. I reached out uh, last week, but haven't heard back because there's alternative surgery centers around the entire country. That you can you can go to versus going to a conventional a hospital that has uh, been influenced or bought by the Medicare Medicaid standards of care the entire that entire system. I knew there was alternative surgery centers previously because I had knee surgery probably eight years ago and I went to alternative uh, surgery center. But this is, is it becomes part of what. You should do to protect yourself and your family is this research has to be done before the need. You right. know, when you're in a situation where the need happens, I mean, you're it's already too late. Then, as far as an the urgency, we have a tab on Grace's website of, uh, that's called Hospital Rescues, and there's forms that are linked on that tab that are medical power of attorneys and the medical directives documents those should be completed ahead of time and you know so if you think about how do you appointed questions, how would you prepare for a hospital stay? Scott if you had to go to the hospital what would you do? you know obviously with my uh, you know, I'd like to change my name if I went to a hospital because <laughs> I'm I'm a, yeah, I'm a marked man, right? But regardless of that, you know, outside of being a marked man, I mean, the, what would I do? Well, I would specifically do a couple of different things. Number one is when I checked into the hospital, I would never sign the little pad that they give you because you're signing away rights. I would insist on a printout. I would cross off an initial, the things where I am giving rights to the hospital. I want to give no rights to the hospital. Then second of all, I would make sure that my medical power of attorney and advocate is with me you need an advocate in the hospital so that you have somebody that is objectively representing you. And I wanna make sure that my medical advocate has the same perspective that I have, that I am there to hire a service. I'm renting a room and I'm hiring a service and I have the right and responsibility to fire the doctor if he's not following my medical directives. So then I make sure that the medical directives document that I have filled out ahead of time, signed, notarized, Uh, I want to make sure that's on my chart. I'm going to have access to my chart live while I'm in the room to make sure that there's nothing that is on my chart that I have not agreed to. And then I'm going to insist that every single thing that happens during the hospital stay, I obtain informed consent for. And so informed consent, it's, it's just logical. So you know, you think about informed consent, what's God say, treat your neighbor as yourself. So, I mean, you're just wanting the doctor to treat you as a human being, give you all the pros, cons, alternatives for every single thing that they're recommending. So we have bought into this idea of trusting the white code. So we go in and we don't, we just assume they're going. their goal is to take care of us, that our best interest is their best interest, but that's not the case anymore. And it hasn't been for a long time. I'm just awake to it now. So that's how I would prepare for a hospital stay. I would never in a million years rely on the document. So the medical directives document tell the, tell the doctor, uh, don't do this, do this. So for example, Cindy and I rescued a disabled man out of a hospital in Green Bay, Wisconsin in November of 22. I went in, sat down with the, well, I mean, he was near dead, but he was still could hear me. He was coherent and him and his power of attorney, we went through the medical directives document, then had a meeting with the doctor and 45 minutes after we had already gone through the medical directives document and the medical directives document specifically said no DNR, no jabs. The nurse came in with the COVID flu jab 45 minutes later, we had to stop her. Wow! So you've got you've got to be on guard. There's no document that can save your life.
1: Okay, so give the name of the website again, so people can dig deeper.
0: OurAmazingGrace.net, and I I have that up on my screen right now. There's several things on there. You mentioned the research, so I did. I've done 2,500 hours of research on medical murder. I created a series called Medical Murder is the Number One Cause of Death in the United States by Design. That's linked on the home page. The hospital rescues tab is up on the top of the homepage. And so that's where the forms are at. And then my own podcast, Deprogramming with Grace's Dad, you can also link to it. It's on Rumble and Brighteon and, you know, a bunch of different stations. But you could link to it on the uh, homepage of the website.
1: Okay, so let's wrap it up. But I want to just say, and I'm not even sure if I should be proud of this or not, or even admit it. I expect wicked people to be wicked. So if I know that there are people at the highest echelons of status governments who are looking to get rid of the likes of me, and I just recently did a podcast with uh, military personnel where it looked like that by denying religious accommodations that they were trying to get rid of a whole segment of the military population who just wouldn't follow orders. But I find myself more irritated with those people who went into these professions as a doctor, a nurse, a phlebotomist, uh, somebody who did x-rays, and they they just do what they're told without thinking through. And for whatever reason, and I don't know if you actually had more animosity towards the people who you got to see in the flesh who participated in your, your daughter's life ending or the people at the top, where do you find where you think the most culpability is?
0: well i think the most culpability is the person who pulled the trigger because they're there you know they know what's happening so you cannot use following orders as an excuse it doesn't cut it you know the people at the top of course are you know their um, their profitability statements their ability to build additions on the hospital and all kinds of crazy stuff you know they're you know they're just as guilty but um, the person who pulled the trigger can stop this. They always could stop it. So I, would, I, I said that the, the hospital administration is just as guilty. They would be second to the person pulling the trigger because they have the ability to stop it. Nurses historically have been the last line of defense. And with COVID, they switched over and became accomplices. Before that, a nurse could stop a doctor's order and often did um, because they're the one that is closest to the patient. I think that is where this, uh, we have the best chance of stopping this is at that level. And, you know, I'm not putting a lot of faith in a lawsuit, Andrea, but, you know, I praise God that we're able to do this. And, you know, our entire case is going forward. We have the the jury trial starts, it's three weeks. Uh, It starts November 4th of 2024, the day before the presidential election.
1: Interesting. So you, some people would say, okay, Scott, get over it. You're bitter. We know you don't like what happened, but you're not just focusing on wrong, wrong, wrong. You're actually helping other people. Tell my listeners about, you know, the billboards and things like that. Yeah.
0: <laughs> that's. i will just, I got to tell you the backstory because, you know, remember I told you about the attorney that said, yeah, you really, you're never going to win a medical malpractice case. So I, I asked, so the one who referred me, he works for a 300- Partner firm. Uh, he's a partner in the firm. So I asked him, I said, if I wrote you a check for two hundred fifty thousand, what would you do? And he said, I wouldn't take your money. He said, You'd be better off buying billboards. Well, that thought had never crossed my mind until he said it. So then, you know, we started we started a billboard campaign. <laughs> and so we got the first billboard up. I take a picture and I send it to him. He said, He he writes back, he said, I never thought you would do it. And <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> so I said, well, I didn't think there was any risk because if anybody's going to go to jail, it's going to be you. You're the one who had the idea. So you know, what did so the we,
1: billboard say?
0: Well, we have a bunch of them. So they're calling out the. a lot of them are calling out the hospital. So we're calling out the DNR that was put on the med combination that's put on. We have one that's a call to get right with God because it's urgent. Uh, We have one that has a whole bunch of other pictures of other disabled people who have been murdered in hospitals that we've gotten to know because of Grace's story. We have one that's a block and a half from the hospital that says, what happened to Grace? And, you know, because our our story is, is so well known already, especially locally, you know, it gets people to the website so then they can see everything and, you know, if you, you start looking at the research that I've done, and I have Grace's records, so there's a tab on the website called The Tragedy. You know, and then the people that take the time to look at it, that, you know, they say it's, you know, there's no question about what happened to Grace. At first, you know, Andrea, when this stuff starts happening, you you think, well, this, it was a one-off. But then what happened, you know, this is how naive I was back then. So Grace died October 13th. I had the records on November 4th, enough to piece it together. I sat down with the doctor. Her and I put together about 100 hours, and we laid out, okay, this is what happened. And at this point, I didn't know Grace was murdered. I just thought she was killed. So I wrote a, a letter to via email to patient relations requesting a meeting with the doctor and the hospital CEO with all this research, figuring, well, they would want to know so that they don't do this to anybody else, Right. That's how dumb I was at that point. Well, they wrote me back on December 2nd of 2021 and said, we're not going to meet with you. And that that was that started the wheels turning. And that's when I filed a complaint with the state licensing board. You know, now I realize the licensing board, I didn't know that at the time, but the licensing board is made up of 10 doctors and three lay people. So it's, you know, it's like the police off the traffic cop giving his traffic cop buddy a ticket. You know, it's not going to happen you know, all you know the wheel all of a sudden you know i'm i'm awake about a- april i really started waking up that's when i realized grace was murdered and that's when i dove in i turned my business over to my guys to run uh so that i can do this full time and you know we see our mission under uh genesis 5020 and genesis 5020 paraphrased is you know what you meant for evil god meant for good the saving of many lives which is happening today and We see that as a physical saving of life. So when you ask me the question about, you know, preparing for a hospital and, you know, that that's very important. You know, people understand uh, you can physically prepare and you can save your life by being prepared. Spiritually is way deeper than I thought I would ever go spiritually. You know, I had a cursory knowledge of Satan before all of this. Now I really understand how uh, Satan works. And the alternatives that he has put together, you know, there's a lot of um, spirituality going on right now. Uh, There's not a lot of acknowledgement of how we got here. We got here because we let our guard down. Why did we let our guard down? Because we didn't look to God. We don't trust God. And so if we don't trust God, when this stuff happens, the first thing you should do is look in the mirror. And so, then, what is God after? He's after repentance. I think COVID was a call to repentance. Right. Most of the people in this move in this medical tyranny movement, I don't see that happening. They don't acknowledge how we got here. So, consequently, there's no repentance, and they're all promoting this buzzword, the the Great Awakening. Well, I see that as as a satanic buzzword uh, to get people off track as to how we got here.
1: Right. So, I was going to ask you, but you sort of answered it. By whose authority have you got on this whole quest, this whole venture? And it sounds like from what you said, you got your authority from God in terms of reading his word and knowing that if you didn't expose this darkness, that you would, in a sense, be complicit. So are you confident that because you're pursuing truth, that God will make your efforts successful?
0: He already has. You know, we do, we all have a responsibility once we we see something, you know, to be watchmen on the wall. I mean, that's our command and we're all accountable to the talents that we've been given. So, I mean, I've been given, you know, talents that I knew I had, but I mean, I didn't realize I would ever use them for this. But, you know, now we, you know, we all are going to be held to account. So God has blessed our efforts. You know, he's opened up so many doors, I can hardly believe it. I don't know what he's going to do with the lawsuit. You know, I can't answer that. You know, I I I trust that, you know, he's He's going to do what, his ways are beyond what I can grasp. I mean, the doors that he's opened, I can't hardly imagine. I mean, we've, we've saved, it isn't us. I mean, God is saving a number of lives through what we've already done. That's um, very
1: good. Okay, one last question. Is Grace in heaven? Oh my gosh,
0: yeah, she's definitely in heaven. <laughs> she she knew Jesus as her savior, and you know how do I know that? It isn't words that that do it. I mean the the idea that uh, you know say this prayer and accept Jesus as your savior. I mean I don't believe in any of that. I believe that it's a heart issue, and you know Grace exemplified what love. Looks like you know I learned a ton from her, and I'll just give you this this blunt example i've I've shared this a few times before first, I got to get you into the mindset so grace grace kept me young you know I've aged a ton in the last couple of years, but she kept me young, and one of the reasons that she did is is uh we went to the county fairs, and she would you know all the rides you know the dad has to go on on all these rides. I mean, I can't take those rides. So most of the rides you're on and then you got to sit down on the bench afterward and your stomach has to catch up for, you know, 15, 20 minutes. Well, one of the times after a ride, I'm sitting on the bench and a man came into the fair who I don't care for. And I don't care for him because not only is he gay, but he married another man and the Unitarian church that he's part of promoted it. So why did I not like him? It has nothing to do with him. It just, I didn't like that. Okay, but what was my responsibility? Well, Grace showed me what my responsibility was. And, you know, she just, she could do this. And so she ran up to him while I'm sitting on the bench and gave him a big hug. And I sat there watching my beautiful daughter do that and realize she can do what I can't. And she did it. Uh, She was a testimony to what God expects all all of us to do.
1: A lot of people would consider that a person with Down syndrome couldn't really be a Christian because he or she doesn't really understand. Did you find that it was hard for her to grasp the reality of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit?
0: That's a great question. And there's a part of it that she may not have understood it. But I mean, God tells us to come like little children, She was very high functioning, you know, so did she really understand it? I can't answer that with 100% certainty. I think she did. I would say she had a mental age of about 13, although that is really irrelevant to when you have the ability to accept what's going on. I I do think she understood it, but she understood it in a real way. Uh, you know, for me, I'm analytical. So I had to understand it in an analytical way first before it, uh, it had to get in my head first before it was in my heart. Grace started with it in her heart, but I think, I think she understood it in her head before she died.
1: Well, that makes it a happy ending, even though there were tragedy. And I I was going to ask you, but you said it yourself, your daughter ends up being a martyr, for the cause of honesty integrity and truth because she certainly didn't want her life to be over and certainly was willing to submit to the authority of you and your wife and all those things were overridden right. by the medical people
0: yeah even gosh you know I, I I relived this stuff I was reliving it this morning laying in bed these are the things that still uh, bring tears to my eyes. You know, the doctor on Grace's last day, you think about what I told you about how they killed her. And yet he told us we need to work on nutrition. And so Cindy and I approved a feeding tube during that phone call after he had asked us about the ventilator. So we approved a feeding tube. And there was no need for that. Now that I see it, it was simply about let's ratchet up the bill one more notch before we kill her. Mm -hmm. And so when the feeding tube was, you know, getting put in, Jessica was there and, you know, Grace said, Jess, Jess, what's, you know, what are they doing? And Jess calmed her and said, mom and dad approved it, Grace, don't worry about it. So Grace took it like a champ. Yeah, it's she was obedient upon, right? You know, she, she wasn't like Jesus, but I mean, I do see the parallel. She was obedient unto death.
1: All right. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to share your story. I can see that you still get emotional. And I don't think that you'll ever not get emotional because we're talking about your little girl. We're talking about a horrendous thing that took place. But I appreciate the fact that you've taken on the mission to ensure that she hadn't died in vain.
0: Thanks. Thanks, Andrea. It was really a Really a pleasure to be on your program. You did a fantastic job as a host. I really appreciate it.
1: Oh, you're welcome. Listeners, check out his website. Check out the things that he said, like I said at the beginning. Maybe you think this is just too hard to believe. Well, then do your own research. The whole purpose is to make you aware of something that you might not be aware of in the normal course of the places that you go for information. Feel free to contact me at outofthequestionpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.
0: Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.